Uh, we've seen valuation declines at, at, at least at 30%, in many cases higher than that. And the reason they're buying is because of the valuation declines. Good morning. This is Deconstruct, a podcast from The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. It's December 11th, and today we're hearing from James Nelson, head of Tri-State Investment Sales at Aviston Young, and Shimon Curry, president and founder of Aerial Property Advisors. Our topic today is the New York City investment sales market. After a year of slow activity, we're seeing what comes next for 2024. But as usual, let's start with the news first. A few House and Senate Democrats introduced bills last week that seek to ban hedge funds from buying and owning single-family homes. The proposed legislation defines hedge funds as corporations, partnerships, and real estate investment trusts that manage pooled funds. I mean, we've seen investors like Blackstone, Starwood, American Homes for Rent, all of those guys snap up huge amounts of single-family homes to rent over the last few years. So... I'm curious, like what happens to firms that already got in on the single family rental trend? Right. So under the proposed legislation, hedge funds would have 10 years to sell the single family homes that they already own that are on their balance sheets. And they would face new taxes, which would go towards down payment assistance for people looking to buy those homes from investors. Hmm. Is this legislation expected to pass? No, given that Republicans control the House and Democrats have a narrow hold on the Senate. But it's still interesting to know that it's on their minds. And, you know, I guess we'll have to see what happens with the election next year. But things could change and they could always bring it back. Yeah. I mean, attention is being paid, I guess, to that trend during the pandemic. We hadn't seen that before. And I mean, it did get sort of out of hand, I guess, as far as these big firms just buying homes. Some of these firms have been forced to sell off big portfolios of single family rentals um, because it's not as economical to keep them on their balance sheet anymore. Right. I mean, is the government looking at whether those purchases inflated the sales market, like inflated prices, and that's why they're trying to crack down on it? I think that that was part of their reasoning. Um, It actually came, the proposals came after the New York Times did this big kind of mapping story um, involving Charlotte. And they looked at how many homes in this one neighborhood of Charlotte had been bought up by investors and found that, you know, I think it was a big majority of them had sold to investors um, over the last couple of years. I think that kind of definitely got some traction. And in their proposal, the legislators were saying, you know, we are concerned about the number of single family homes that are going to investors. Well, speaking of legislation, so the New York City Council is really trying to sort out whether landlords are holding units empty across the city, particularly rent stabilized units. Landlords have a few things to say about the way in which they're going about that. So last Wednesday, the council passed a bill that would force the city to do an inspection of a vacant unit if a tenant made a complaint about that unit over a hazardous condition. So like rats in the unit or mold, for example. This is just for me, but do they, because I feel like if I was a tenant, I wouldn't know that a building a unit is empty? That came up before. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> no, it's a, <laughs> it's a good question. I guess, so like in the rent-stabilized buildings, the idea I think is that a lot of those tenants, you know, you get that apartment and it's basically like you want, you won the lottery, not literally the New York City, like apartment lottery, but it's like you have this 
home for your life and maybe like your children's lives. So like those people live in that building and they really know that building. And I guess if you're like I was talking to a tenant organizer who was saying they've worked with people who are living in in an apartment and then the next door they just hear rats and they know whoever was living there like moved out a year ago or something like that. So I guess it's the fact that they're so intimately knowledgeable about these buildings because they've lived there for so long. Got it. Got it. That that yeah, I think that makes sense. So the idea is to track vacancies, right? To figure out how many units are vacant. Part of it is to hold landlords accountable for the maintenance of these units. But when I was talking to council members this summer, I spoke to council member Gail Brewer, who is a co-sponsor on the bill, and she said the big thing here is data. She was like, I keep hearing about these quote unquote warehouse units, which is actually a term we coined to refer to apartments that are held off market. She was like, I keep hearing about them, but I just don't know how many there are. So we need to get some sense of the scope. And what do landlords think about this? Well, they think that we already have the data, which is kind of true. So the rub is that there have been a number of estimates of how many vacant apartments there have been. This issue came to light. I would say like in the past two years, it started getting a lot of traction. And at first, a landlord group, CHIP, said there were 20,000 vacant units. And then the state housing agency, HCR, said there were 60,000. And then the city said there were 40,000. So, you know, tens of thousands, but the range is pretty wide. But all that is to say, like, the city did have a number of vacant units. So landlords are saying this bill is, isn't is really going to give the city a better look into the number of vacant units anyway, because the city's only going to be able to collect data when a tenant complains. So it's going to be pretty piecemeal. So on to our self-proclaimed distressed segment of the week, GVA, which is a syndicator out of Austin, they raise money to buy up apartment complexes, is set to lose more properties in Houston to foreclosure. Yeah, we've been covering GVA sort of around the periphery of our syndicator coverage, I guess we could say, for a few months now. The details about their fight with distress are actually in our magazine story this month about syndicators. But Bella, tell us about the latest default. So the latest is GVA has defaulted on nearly $125 million in loans tied to two Houston apartment properties. Both loans were originated by Loan Core Capital and then packaged into collateralized loan obligations or CLOs. Securities in those CLOs are then sold off to investors. And GVA, I know, is facing a number of other foreclosures and defaults. Last month, it defaulted on a $288 million loan that was also a Loan Core mortgage uh, that had been packaged into CLOs. That debt was tied to five apartment complexes across the Sun Belt, Texas, Tennessee, and South Carolina were the states there. So pretty hefty portfolio. Right. And just to recap, what's propelling a lot of these defaults is rising interest rates. A lot of these syndicators used floating rate debt to acquire kind of value-add Class B, Class C properties. The plan was to renovate them and then kind of flip them within, you know, a two to five-year hold period. Five is probably... The upper extreme. Yeah. Five is probably more extreme there. But as the Fed hiked rates in 2022, their debt service skyrocketed, right? So we saw, you know, probably tenfold um, in some cases. So they haven't been able to raise rents fast enough to keep up with their how fast their debt service is rising. 
And then hopping over to the office market, uh, which is a good lead into our interview today, actually. SL Green is selling the Plaza District office building at 625 Madison Avenue for $633 million. That's about $1,100 per square foot. Wow. I assume that that's one of the largest office deals this year. Yeah. Yeah. The capital markets have really dried up all sales, which we will also get into in our talk today. Yeah. I feel like this is hinting at our conversation, but many brokers have told me, you know, over the last few months that valuations have fallen, but there really haven't been enough trades to get good comps for office properties. So I think, you know, I guess we'll see if this is going to start to be the benchmark. Um, for future trades. Who is the buyer on the SL Green Tower? Yeah, so it's related companies is buying the tower. It's a 17-story building and it ends this like pretty wild saga. Rich Bachman has done really great reporting on that. Um, A few pieces came out this summer, definitely worth reading. So SL Green acquired a mezzanine portion of the debt from Ben Ashkenazi, who owned the ground underneath the building after he defaulted. And then given SL Green how to stake in the mezzanine loan, it initiated a UCC foreclosure and acquired the ground too. That sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, um, but it kind of comes down to this like brass knuckles brawl between SL Green and Ben Ashkenazi. So check it out. Mm-hmm. And it was really, you know, capitalizing on distress here. SL Green already owned the leasehold interest in the building, but was very skillful in acquiring the ground interest too. Okay, so transitioning into our chat this week, we're going to start with a wide-angled look at New York's investment sales market. So you'll hear from Avison Young's James Nelson on that. He'll speak first. And then we will zoom in on multifamily in New York and the rent-stabilized housing space particularly with Ariel Investment Advisors, Shimon Shakuri. So the New York investment sales market has sort of been in the doldrums for the past year and a half, I guess we could say. How would you explain the performance there and what's been driving that? Sure. So this year in New York City, it looks like annualized sales are going to end up at less than $10 billion, which is significantly less than the 10-year average, which is at about $34 billion. So there's no doubt, and this really started since last June, as soon as interest rates started going up, most investors went to the sidelines because of the uncertainty. How long are these rates going to go up? If rates are going up, clearly there's going to be downward pressure on pricing. So I think what happened was a lot of investors said, look, we're going to just wait because there'll be better opportunities to come. So I think that's really culminated this year with uh, a very low amount of sales velocity. But that all being said, I think it is hard to paint or you shouldn't paint the market with one brush because there's very different things going on within the different asset classes. So we can we can jump into that if you like. Yeah, let's get into that in a minute. I did want to ask, you know, we have another Fed meeting this year. The expectation, though, is that rates will stay higher for longer into 2024. And right now they're at a 22-year record high. So I'm wondering if we do stay higher for longer, how do you see that impacting investment sales in New York overall? And then we can get into some specifics. Sure. Cap rates are tracking at this point, I would say, with um, interest rates. And I think what what investors are telling us today is, look, we want to stabilize where 
we can ultimately finance. So we want the debt to be neutral, uh, maybe not uh, a, a, hopefully accretive, but but certainly they don't want to take on negative leverage. So that's certainly a consideration. Uh, and yes, I, I think investors at this point understand this is where rates are, and so the pricing has to reflect that. So I, I think again, as I was saying before. I think the biggest challenge really for investors is not knowing how to price things because if interest rates continue to go up, then the question becomes, well, where are cap rates going to be in the future when I go to sell this? But I think right now we are starting to see some more certainty in the marketplace where hopefully investors will, will begin jumping back in. Right. So you mentioned you have a white paper coming out about who's buying in today's market. So who is buying? Sure. So what's really interesting is, and this is from real capital analytics data, and then we verified saw the same trend in just our sales looking from last year to this year. But foreign capital in New York City, uh, as far as percentage of, of deal volume has tripled. So we're seeing a lot of foreign investors who are jumping in, seeing opportunity. Oftentimes, these foreign investors are cash buyers. They have a long-term perspective. So that's been really great to see. And also private high net worth investors who are domestic uh, are taking advantage of this market while, while a lot of the institutions are still on the sidelines. So that's that's really been uh, interesting to see. And then also looking at vacant retail and vacant office, which and I know you all have done a lot of great reporting and, and certainly challenges in, in that space. But if you're looking for bright spots, it's that end users are stepping up and buying into this market. I think there's no better example than Hyundai buying their office down at 1317 Late Street for $275 million. Or if you look at Dyson, they bought retail space on Madison Avenue and Wooster Street in Soho. So you're seeing end users step up and fill the void, which has also been helpful. Got it. Okay. That's interesting. So it's people overarchingly who don't have to deal with the financing markets, folks who have deep pockets and can reach into them. Correct. So let's talk about office a little bit. It's clearly showing a number of signs of distress, you know, I've written about foreclosures and deeds in lieu of foreclosure. Um, we just had the WeWork bankruptcy. So I'm wondering in the investment sales market, do you believe that you'll see sales of distressed office properties or is it the sense that lenders are still going with the extend and pretend, kick the can strategy? Yeah, I, I think there's certainly still a lot of that where lenders are kind of holding off on making those tough decisions and hoping that the market continues to recover. Uh, there's also a lot of operators who are trying to figure out different ways to reposition properties. Um, I, I know you all have done a great job recording on office to resi conversions, and we have seen some of that. It has to happen at the right basis. And so we, we've seen some examples of that downtown. Uh, but you know, look, where there have been sales, and as you noted, we are seeing discounted payoffs where lenders are saying, look, we really don't want this uh, back. And uh, you're seeing new capital, mostly, again, private foreign capital, in many cases, stepping in and taking down these trophy assets that I, I think in many cases, big discounts to where they would have previously traded. I'm curious about sublease space. So I was looking at your third quarter office report, and it showed a decline. So what would you say is driving that? Well, I, I think there's great opportunities direct right now. And I think what's really interesting about our report is that 75% of the leasing, uh, office leasing activity has been for 25% of the space. So if you look at 25% of the office stock, it's class A and trophy. 
and 75% of the office demand is going for that 25%. So there's no doubt a flight quality. Uh, part of that is um, certainly you, you could say pricing, but I, I think it's employers recognize that they're getting a better outcome if they can offer their employees a, a great place to be. And there's some interesting studies too that I know Real uh, Rebney has done about the return to office uh, and showing that, yes, in the better class buildings, you're getting a better return to office as well. So turning to multifamily for a bit, we've seen this this significant drop-off in new construction. Um, at the same time, rents remain near record highs. There's a housing crisis. So to what degree do you see the expiration of 421A driving that decline in new projects? Yeah, no, it, it was really unfortunate to see the 421A expire right after that happened. Uh, in the middle of that last year, we saw land sales drop by 75%. And right now, developers we're speaking to are pencils down on new rental development. And really, uh, the only land that we're seeing trade right now is really the two ends of the barbell. So you're seeing condo, and then you're seeing fully affordable. But most developers are saying to take the risk today, what it costs to finance, construction costs to build a building, when there's not certainty around real estate taxes, they're saying, look, we're going to wait. So it's really unfortunate because the city desperately needs housing of all types, uh, certainly affordable housing as well. And so, um, you know, it's very clear that we need a, a, a public-private partnership, some type of incentive to encourage developers to build rental once again. Right. And at the same time, sales of multifamily buildings are also down. But I'm hearing there's a bunch of dry powder on the sidelines. So I guess looking at that asset class specifically, when do you expect to see that cash deployed? Sure. So we're, we're starting to see it now. Our group has actually been very active in the multifamily space. Uh, we've closed 34 transactions to date, many of them multifamily mixed use. And really, you know, in this middle market space where a lot of these deals are cash buyers. Um, interestingly, we're seeing a lot of foreign buyers in this space too. A lot of Japanese buyers are very focused on the multifamily sector. So that's been good to see. But look, th there, there are more attractive yields available uh, in the market today before June of last year uh, when, when rates and, and debt was still uh, very inexpensive. We saw that cap rates were in that mid 4% range. And now we're in that mid 5% range. So we're seeing 100 basis points. And where there's still predominantly fair market, where you have the ability to make improvements, we're still seeing huge growth in, in residential rents, again, because there's just not enough product, new product being built to, to offset uh, those costs. Let's also touch on your book. So earlier this year, you published the Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing. So that being said, what would your advice be to an investor who wants to get in now when it's a down market? So this goes in any market, but even more important today is seller's motivation. Okay. And it's, it shocks me how rarely I'm asked by buyers, James, why is your client selling? Now, look, if I have a client who's under financial distress, I'm not going to just sit there and volunteer that. But you can definitely, by asking some probing questions and looking, for example, how much debt is on the property? So if you're looking at a property where a broker is asking $25 million and you see they owe the lender $24.5 million, there might not be enough money in there to actually transact, right? You might be actually speaking to the wrong party. You might be able to speak to the lender. 
So asking these questions of why is someone selling and not to say that all estate sales are necessarily great deals, but you want to deal today with a seller who needs to make a decision and is willing to sell into the market as opposed to a discretionary seller where in good times they say, hey, I know my property is only worth 25 million, but if you can get me 35, I'll sell, right? It's really important to ask those questions of why, right? And then I think the other point is now more than ever, this business is all about the relationships. So I think cultivating relationships with investment sale brokers is super important because you don't want to just see what's on market. You want to see what's in their pipeline. You want to see what's off market, right? And so you don't want to just be sitting there waiting for that call from your broker. You want to reach out. You want to, it really needs to be a two-way street and cultivating those relationships. So those are just two of the examples of really specific things that talked about in the book. My name is Shimon Shkuri. I'm the president and founder of Ariel Property Advisors. I was just reviewing Ariel's recent multifamily report, and it shows across the board that trades have declined quarter over quarter. So dollar volume, transaction volume, property volume. I'm wondering, is that are those suppressed sales? Would you say that's still being driven by the bid-ask gap? Yeah, I think, I think there are a few elements to what's happening in that market. And when we talk about the multifamily market, we should remember that we're talking about three different sub-markets. First is free market, then it's rent stabilized, and the third is affordable housing, all of which uh, behave differently. But what really happened in the past quarter or was affected is, is, is interest rates. We, we expected interest rates to stay where they were in the beginning of the year, but that changed. And so that, um, that's something that we've experienced and definitely uh, didn't help transaction volume. You know, we're seeing a lot of money today that's in the market and expecting further valuation declines in the near future, especially uh, because of the sale of the FDIC signature portfolio, which will come at some point uh, this year. And we think that some of that money is is waiting to place. And and the last thing is in the, for the second quarter, we actually so closer to $4 billion of uh, multifamily transactions. And that is because of several larger affordable housing deals that didn't take place in the third quarter. So that's most of most of the reason that we've seen uh, transaction volume declines. And it's 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 clear that it's affecting the bid ask as well in, in a way. Uh-huh. Would you say that investors are waiting for prices to fall further before they step in, or are they waiting for more clarity on the interest rate environment? I think there is some clarity and the expectation is that interest rates will stay um, high for longer. And I do think that some expect prices to come down further. Um, the, the biggest thing I think today that, that we all should watch for and, and investors are waiting for as well is, is all of these, the issue of mortgage maturities. It's not a secret that more, the, you know, the, the interest rate environment has changed how um, how it, your ability to refinance a loan uh, in in any category, if it's affordable housing, free market, or rent stabilized, the cost of refinancing a loan today is more than double what it was 
uh, two or three years ago. And that's a substantial amount. And so for the most part, that's what's affecting, that's part of what's affecting uh, the wait and see approach in many of these uh, situations. Uh, yeah. But there are transactions today. And, you know, as, as you've seen from the report, uh, they're driven by free market buildings predominantly because or mostly because of the inflation hedge that these present. Uh, there are uh, transactions in every asset class as well, in the rent-stabilized multifamily as well. But there, in rent-stabilized, the pricing is a lot lower. Right. Yeah, I wanted to touch on those maturities. Um, do you see those in the city? Do you see those driving sales? Do you think people will try to, I guess, in, you know, owners who are struggling with their multifamily buildings, will they try to sell rather than um, negotiate a workout or some sort of refinancing? Yeah, I think the mortgage maturities, as you can see in the office market as well, are, are driving sellers or owners to make decisions. And in some cases, if there's still equity and there need, there's a need to have a cash-in refinance, which really means that an owner needs to come in with fresh equity in order to refinance a loan. And they might just make a decision to uh, sell a property instead of putting more money into it. So we definitely see that as one of these effects in, in the market moving forward. We haven't seen, we started to see that this year. I think we'll see it in a bigger way next year. If you think about it, most of the loans or many of the loans are five-year loans. And so um, if, you, if you work it backwards, we're starting to see the 2019 and 18 and 20, 21, 22 vintage. And even if you have a loan that's not coming due next year, you'll have to think about, okay, what happens when I do need to refinance? These are some of the questions we're getting from, from many clients that are starting to evaluate their portfolios moving forward. I think 2024 is going to be a year where mortgage maturities in the multifamily uh, specifically, uh, mostly in rent stabilized, but throughout uh, is going to uh, show effects of, of forced selling and some workouts that we anticipate to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Since you mentioned, you know, we've been sort of flirting with talking about rent stabilized, let's get into it a little bit more. So rent stabilized trades accounted for just 16% of sales in the third quarter, according to your report. And we know the rent stabilized market has been dealing with a lot of challenges, um, rising expenses, revenues are effectively capped since the 2019 rent law passed, and valuations have fallen pretty significantly. So can you talk about what building owners have been able to, which building owners have been able to trade properties and then what the discounts have looked like for those assets that have sold? Yeah, I think you hit on exactly the right points. I think the um, magnitude of the HSTPA, the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act, which is the legislation you discussed, uh, uh, you know, regarding 2019, is is the effect of that has been detrimental to the rent stabilized uh, market valuations, um, and then the expenses that you mentioned, but including also the very quick change in interest rates and the sensitivity that rent stabilized housing has specifically to interest rates have declined or has pushed the values to decline drastically. And so what we're seeing today are sellers who made a strategic decision to sell and move on and not be in that category of rent stabilized anymore or what we discussed a little bit before, which is forced selling because of financial situation where you really need to 
refinance a loan and you barely have any equity and you want out, you just don't want to hold on to the asset. So these are the sellers of today. The buyers of today have changed since 2019. And they are, you know, families, high net worth, long-term view of whoever buys rent stabilized today. That's the reason they buy it is to hold, not in perpetuity necessarily, but for a very long time. And the reason they're buying is because of the valuation declines. Uh, we've seen valuation declines at, at, at least at 30%, in many cases higher than that. Uh, and that's a big part of why these families are buying today as the basis is so low. Uh, and the second reason why they're buying is because we and, and they believe that the legislation is not necessarily something that could be sustainable in the city uh, moving forward or you know, long term, it just creates the, the scenario that is created is that there's no incentive for landlords to put money into vacant units. In many cases, these units are being held uh, vacant for longer. Uh, the buildings are starting to, the dilapidation rates are increasing. So over time, the belief is that things will have to change, but it might take time. So these are this is what's part of what's happening in rent stabilized. I can talk about that that portion of uh, of, of multifamily forever because I, I don't think that the legislation helped uh, either the tenants or the landlords clearly. So right, yeah. I mean, I was I'm just writing earlier today another story about defaults. So like, could you get into a little bit more the distress that's been impacting the market? It feels like I I think we talked. Maybe it was in January about the early signs of it, and I, it seems to me um, just observing that it's been ramping up. Yeah, and and it has yes, it has been ramping up a bit. And again, just remember that we still have this looming FDIC signature sale that needs to take place and probably will trickle down uh, throughout the market. Um, and I, I think that if you if you want to be more scientific about it and specifically focus for a second on run stabilized multi because it's it's easy to capture um, any loan that was given pre-2019 is, uh, you know, was given on a valuation that was predated, that predated the, the law, the new law. So it clearly, for the most part, these loans are going to be underwater and when they come due, um, and some of them have, are going to have issues and either a workout is necessary, a, a note sale is necessary, or unfortunately a foreclosure. Uh, for rent stabilized, moving after 2019, um, after the law has changed, the challenge is, is, is not the valuation because the lenders for the most part accounted for the lower valuation. Uh, but what, what happened is interest rates increases. So now you're coming into a refinance after you have a, a low three percent loan in an environment that that you know that costs you closer to a seven or above a seven in some cases in terms of uh, cost of debt, and you have to do what we discussed before, which is cash and refinance. So that's going to create some sort of distress on owners that will have to either again bring new cash, fresh cash. Uh, in, and 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 I think that is, um, I mean, that's where you'll see in the rent stabilized multi. That's where you see the majority of the issues in multifamily. Less so in free market. Uh, very little, if any, in affordable housing. Just because these two 
are less affected. They have the ability to increase rents over time, uh, especially free market, and allow to be an allow it to be an inflation hedge in a way. So it it's it's not going to be as detrimental detrimental in these two asset classes. The free market and affordable housing definitely an issue for rent stabilized. Yeah, do you see the banks in that space? New York Community Bank is a big lender to rent stabilize multifamily, and especially since Signature collapsed earlier this year, do you see those banks working with borrowers? It seems as though they have really long term relationships. Yeah, it's uh, the answer is absolutely yes, and I think it depends on how you, you you hit it right on the head. The relationship is a key, and if there's a borrower who wants to stay long term and is willing to pay down a note and do a a short or long term workout with the lender, um, we see so far that the lenders are amenable for the most part to working with the borrowers. I think it's just starting, and I think that the exact systematic approach and how that's going to trickle down to the market and work um, is is still um, is still a question mark. I can tell you that we've we've been advising a few lenders in the past year on systematizing their response to borrowers. Um, and I think you'll see more of that moving forward. Uh, but but you know it's kind of a feeling of we're all in in this together. Uh, the lenders don't want to take back rent stabilized buildings specifically if they don't have to. But in some cases, the you know, the owners are saying, look, you know, the valuation is not there. We're handing over the keys. In many cases, they'll say, look, the valuation is not there today. We're willing to do A, B, and C and extend the situation. And lenders might say yes to that. I think that next year we'll see a lot more workouts like this moving forward. So let's talk about Signature a bit. So when those loans do sell, both the rent-stabilized loans and the CRE loan book, which includes some market rate, um, how do you expect it to impact the multifamily market in New York? So I think that what we expect to see is whoever the buyers of these pools are, they're probably going to try to sell some of these notes. I'm assuming they're going to buy it at a certain discount and sell some of these notes uh, back to the market. Now, what was public is that the FDIC is going to participate in financing these loans, um, which means that, again, the FDIC is going to also benefit from any upside. But our thought process is that this these notes will be sold at smaller chunks or maybe individual buildings or loans to the market. Maybe some of them will be offered at a discount. Maybe some of them will be offered to borrowers. And that will start a trickle-down effect um, in, in understanding how to price uh, these loans today and how to view rent-stabilized multi and generally speaking multifamily um, when it comes to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the note sales. Um, and I think it'll also give a cue and, and some idea for other lenders on how to to view their books. Uh, you mentioned your community, but there's others too uh, to view their books and their valuations and what it means for them moving forward in this uh, higher interest rate environment. What's what's interesting to see in general is is the amount of capital that's ready to invest. In multifamily throughout um, the city, almost no matter what what kind of 
multifamily it is, right? And any, any sub-segment of multifamily has capital that's that's ready for it. Really? Even rent-stabilized? Even rent-stabilized. Not institutional, but yes, there's a lot of private money that's willing to buy it. Clearly, rent-stabilized is a lot more sensitive to pricing. And that's where you'll see most of the price adjustments. Deconstruct is every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have a guest or idea you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're going to be airing one of our interviews about artificial intelligence and real estate from our Miami forum in November. Tune in then.